0: And God is moving in this chapter in a special way, uh, moving towards the new heaven and the new earth. He is promised the full display of His glory. He has sent Christ, His servant, to to bear human guilt and justify the ungodly, and we, we've seen that in Isaiah 53 and what that was going to look, qualifying them for the new world. He pours out His Spirit on the lowly and revives um, us for the tasting of the future glory. Second uh, Chronicles 16.9, I'm reminded of that, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. And that plays a lot into what Isaiah is sharing in this text this morning. He wants, God wants, His church to serve as the model home of what's coming, the new neighborhood that He's promised to build. He wants everyone to be able to look at West Hills Church, to be able to look at uh, His Church Universal and see, hey, this is a little glimpse of what the future is like and what's coming. And you may sit there and you go, oh, uh, I'm not nearly hopefully good enough to be a glimpse of that. Well, that's the idea of growing in the Lord, right? You're growing in Him, and so that, that's good. That's a good place to start and realize, hey, I'm supposed to be a light, and what does that light point to? And that points to Christ, and you're actually going to see that here in this chapter as well. So what kind of church is, is credible in the role of giving a glimpse of what heaven is going to look like? What kind of church is preparing the way of the Lord? What kind of church does God strongly support? Those are some of the questions that we we can see and answer in Isaiah 58. The teaching here has some really strong links with a certain sermon in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus. If I were to summarize the Sermon on the Mount in a single sentence, my summary would simply be this How to live a life that is dedicated to and pleasing to God, free from hypocrisy, full of love and grace, full of wisdom and discernment. Go read Matthew chapter 5 through 7 this week, on top of all the other readings that we ask you to read. And you will get a glimpse, a very strong glimpse, of how the church is supposed to look. Isaiah 58 has a challenging message to it, just like the Sermon on the Mount has a very challenging message to it. Not because it's hard to understand, because it's just hard to live out. It's hard to live out. And Isaiah jumps right into this in verse 1, dealing with something that kind of happens in our culture a lot today. And that word that I want to take a look at is the word token, tokenism. Tokenism, if you don't know, is the policy or practice of making only a symbolic effort. You hear about it in the business world, you hear about it in politics, you hear about it in everything, but you also hear about it in the Bible. God is confronting people being fake, people being fake. Let's look at verse 1 as we get started out here. Call out from your throat, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. So he's confronting this tokenism. God brings out basically the big guns. The big guns of prophetic confrontation. He's aiming at the conviction of sin. After verse 1 then, what do we expect to read? Well, what are these sins? What's going on? So verse 1 is a Hey, everyone, as we see many times in Isaiah, it's like, I'm about to say something that should convict you. And you go, okay, so what is he going to do? Is he going to trash all of us that mess up on all Ten Commandments? What is he going to do? This one's interesting. Starting in verse 2, going through the middle of verse 4. Yet they seek me day by day and find pleasure in knowing my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the judgment of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They find pleasure in the nearness of God. And so you see a quote there. And so these are the people now saying something. Why have we fasted and you do not see? So this is a question to God. Why have we afflicted our souls and you do not know? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and quarreling and to strike with the wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. So let me kind of paint a picture for you modern day with this. You move to a new area of town, or you move to a new state, or you move to a new city. It's too far to go to the church that you've been going to. And so you've, you've been a person that delights in being in church and worshiping with, with God's people and the saints. And so what do you do? You You, you look and you join a new church. And you, you're looking for people that are delighted to draw near to God, right? I mean, that's what you're hopefully you're looking for. And so you kind of see that and you join that church. But is there a chance that that church is not actually that type of church? Maybe they're fake. Maybe, maybe it's not really what's going on. Because sometimes you can go to a church and it says all the right things, has all the right belief statements, all of that type of stuff, and you go and then you ponder for a moment after maybe being there for a little while and you go, are are these people really delighting in God? Is this a church that's really delighting in the relationship with God? kind of convicting message here, because what we see here is something was deeply wrong with this group of people, Israel, that's worshiping the Lord, and I'll use worshiping with quotes around it. What were these people actually thinking? Well, look back into verse 3 with me. Look back into verse 3 with me where they ask that question. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we afflicted ourselves? Why have we afflicted our souls and you do not know? So these people, we already know something. They've been fasting They've afflicted themselves. And so in the Hebrew, that word is actually a forceful version of humbling themselves. And and so they're they're going, hey, hey, aren't we taking sin seriously? And for some reason, God, you're still standing off at a distance. You're still withholding yourself. And they're going, why? 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 But the question why is not really an open-hearted request for instruction. It's a way of dumping their frustration on God because what's going on is, hey God, we are quote-unquote doing all of the right stuff and you are not being fair. So they're being worshipful, pious towards God And they're ticked off at him at the same time. And it's their sincerity, and I use that as a not really sincerity, but it's their fake sincerity that explains their anger. Because this is what's going on, everyone. They sincerely believe that they are obligating God and pressuring God to do something which is the basic teaching of the prosperity gospel that we see today if you have enough faith god has to answer your prayer in the way you want it it's a messed up version of the bible where God rewards increases of faith with increases in health or increases in wealth. And that's not new. It's right here in Isaiah 58. They're, they're fasting, they're praying, their self deprivation isn't leveraging what they want out of God. And they're resenting it. And, I, and tell you, everyone, this is one of those teachings that really bugs me in our world today. It bugs me. So I'm just going to tell you if you want to fight me on it, you will lose. Go to Uganda and be in a church there where they worship God sincerely for two to three hours in the morning when it's 110 degrees, and I was preaching through the book of John because they were going through that, and I was going to die. The place was packed. They didn't understand a word I was saying except through a translator. It's in a tin metal roofed building, and it was 110 outside. Who knows how hot it was inside? And according to, tradition, according to tradition, what was the pastor supposed to wear there? Suit and tie. I was dying. I was like, this is awful. But you know what? They were so sincere in their worship. And they didn't expect God to do anything about how much money they make. What they did do is look around to those around them and helped each other. See the difference? And you'll see that here in Isaiah 58. And so they were resenting here that God wasn't answering the way they wanted it answered. And it was poisoning their souls towards God. And that's what's so sad about believing something like that is, well, I've been told if I have enough faith, this will happen. And it doesn't. And so then what? I must not have enough faith. I must be an awful person. God must not really love me. And and a person that's truly trying to live out their faith gets confused by that because they're being taught wrong. They're being taught a fake faith, a fake religion, a token religion. You see, where they went wrong was back in verse 2, actually, if you want to look there with me. As a nation that has done righteousness, some of your versions may say as if, which actually is a better, better way to understand it, as if they were a nation that did righteousness? They were role-playing. They were playing church. They're playing church. To be people who seek God and to be like people who seek God, to God, the difference is infinite. To be people who seek God and to be people like people who seek God are worlds apart. It's shallow. And, and, And they're being confronted with that once again. It's being exposed. Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure. And oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. So it's confronted, it's rejected, starting then in the second part of verse 4. You do not like, you do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like that which I choose, a day for a man to afflict himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to Yahweh? And let me explain that to you. What's going on there is that in our lives, we think in everything in pieces and parts. How many of us try to put the piece of our life together? Pieces and parts. I've got my faith part. I've got my work part. I've got my family part. I've got this part. I've got that part. I've got parts I don't like anymore. I've got parts, parts, parts. And we don't end up connecting the dots with living for God and seeking God in everything. Monday through Friday. In verses 1 through 5 show us this. You know, he's saying, you know, how you treat people on Monday is the test of your authenticity of your fasting on Sunday in our translation, in our world. How you treat people on Monday is the test of the authenticity of your fasting on Sunday. You see, God doesn't think piecemeal. He knows, and we should know, we can't compensate for neglect in one area of our life by observing something more in another, especially when fasting in this case and putting ourselves before God and laying our heads before Him and worshiping Him actually is less demanding than the labor-intensive involvement of being with people all week long. People are messy, right? Relationships with others are messy. It'd be awesome if none of us sinned. You see, yeah, God doesn't want us to live prayerless lives. God doesn't want us to run on our own steam. Yes, we need to be quiet before Him, so He's not saying don't fast. Fasting's a valid way to do that, but neither does God want us to prove our devotion to Him by making ourselves hungry and miserable while disregarding our obligation to serve others and share the joy of the Lord with them. Back way back when, when I was a youth pastor back in, uh, back a long time ago, <laughs> there was this big thing called the 40-hour fast. I, I, that's not the right word for it. They had a cooler phrase for it. But it was basically this idea, hey, we're going to get the whole youth group together and we're going to do a 40-hour fast of some sort. And you would start with like the all-in 40-hour fast where people wouldn't eat and, and drink uh, anything except water and they would be worshiping the Lord, kind of a, a, a picture of a fast that way. But then they knew that some people wouldn't do that. And so there was a 40-hour fast that progressively got cheesier. All right, I'm going to do 40 hours of not playing video games. Oh, yeah, God's going to really honor that. Yippee. (laughs) And so I, I actually, I refused to do that stuff as the youth pastor back then. And the the local reps in the area were always like, we don't understand. You've got all of these kids and you're not doing that. I was like, I feel like it's fake. Because it's not dealing with what everyone's like Monday through Friday. Maybe if we get to where we are supposed to be, the people we're supposed to be, godly people Monday through Friday, maybe that'll make that thing even more powerful. And I get that you sometimes do one and do the other, but why don't you do all of it because it's not supposed to be piecemeal. If our Christianity is sincere, it makes us move. What, what was Jesus' command to us? The first word of it is two letters. It starts with the letter G and ends with the letter o any guesses <laughs> go what does the word go imply you you move you do something and so he finishes the statement of, go and make disciples Go share God's Word. Go share my gospel and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them in all of my Word. It sounds pretty much like, hey, we're we're moving here. We're moving because God is worth it. We're moving because if our Christianity is sincere... We want to make this place that we live around us better. We want to shine the light of the gospel. We want people to come to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If we're unhelpful to others... It's unacceptable to God whether you fast or not. That's why there was always this battle between Jesus and the Pharisees about the Sabbath. Because for many of the Pharisees, the Sabbath was. And Jesus called them out on it. Hey, you guys are nothing but what? Whitewashed tombs. I can be up here singing to the Lord, behold our God, and be the biggest sinner on the face of the planet at the same time. Right? The Bible says in James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. Visit orphans, widows in their affliction. Now, some churches these days, they stop there. James doesn't stop there. That, that sentence goes on beyond there. So, but that, that means we take care of people, people that need to be taken care of. visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's the whole thing. Don't fast if you don't live for God. Monday through Friday. If you're trying to live God- for God, Monday through Friday, then then you need to be keeping the Sabbath or the Lord's Day in our case. And we're going to explain that because Isaiah does explain that in just a few minutes here. It's the whole thing. The best way to picture this is the, you know, is the circle, the circle that w- will not be broken. Because when you go and you serve and you grow, you go and you serve and you grow, you're rolling the whole way. It's not... It's not A plus B equals C. It's, it's I'm moving the whole time. And part of the problem in our culture today is what the modern world calls privatization. The secular world wants you to live your faith in Christ a certain way. What's the way that the secular world says is okay for you to live out your faith in Christ? In private. And there's a tendency then for believers to treat their faith as a personal lifestyle option. Disconnected from the responsibilities of what the Christian faith is all about. And this is not new. Obviously, it was happening in the Old Covenant. It was happening in the New Covenant. It was happening during the time of the Puritans. Daniel mentioned a Puritan. Let's mention another guy, Jonathan Edwards. He said this, Christian love disposes a person to be public-spirited. A man of right spirit is not a man of narrow and private views But is greatly concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs, and particularly of the city where he resides. Christianity, then, this is my words now, must be deeply internal and personal, but if it stops there, it becomes a hobby. How many of you know all of my hobbies? Well, they're private. You don't know all of them. You don't know that I would love to be in a marching band. You know, my cool factor just dropped by 70%. But you know that that idea, and let me let me paint the picture of that this If you say it, that's okay. I'm still going to say it's dumb. But this whole idea of the man cave type of thing, it's where you go in and this is my private area and this is what I do and my time and whatever, that is the exact opposite of what Christianity is supposed to be like in your life. When you look at Scripture, first of all, you will notice, if you look at, especially if you look at the, the New Testament and the idea of the words in the New Testament, and, the, and it, there's no individualistic thing about it except personally accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. Everything else is body of Christ. We're one in body, one in spirit, Before we're Christians, we're one in sin. You see, the essence of being a Christian is love for Christ. That's the power of it, the genius of it. The authentic Christian expresses that heart for Christ in two ways, right? True worship, true praise, true prayer, true lifting of hands, true opening Bibles and understanding and reading, all beautiful to God, but it's also courageous evangelism and defending the weak. And that definition, don't let the world define the weak. Bible already defines it. Widows, orphans, it's people that That can't take care of themselves because something's gone on that's awful. You notice that? They've lost a loved one, they've lost their parents. This is not a social justice thing, this is just being awesome Christians. It's courageous evangelism. What did he say to do? Go. Go and share the gospel. He says, go give a cup of cold water in in what? In my name. Which means you're sharing the gospel in that process. It's all combined. For example, it's, it's defending the unborn baby in our culture. We need to be the people that continue to do that. Yes, in other parts of the United States, there's been some victories won now, right, on that? But not where we live. Defending the unborn baby, it's protecting I mean, this is a huge one. The world is destroying our younger generations. We've got to be protecting our, our young people, their minds. We've got to be protecting them from being indoctrinated with false teachings about how God created them. We've got to tell them that, you know what? God really did create you one way and one way only and there's not 700 different ways. See, that's that's Satan's lie. So this is not being wimpy and weak. This is actually being strong and courageous. But what were they doing? We're going to fast, and then we're going to blame God for not getting anything. No, it's caring for the widow and the orphan, keeping yourself undefiled from the world's ways. It's a both and. It's, you have to do both. And putting ourselves out there as Christians is contrary to our natural selfishness. And actually then it makes it even more significant to God because God sees then our heart it's not what saves us it doesn't make him move in a different way but we do know that he he does reward but most of the time that reward's not here it's in heaven In in verses 6 through 12, he's saying heart devotion is needed here. And there's a move back and forth three times here between the spirituality that God considers authentic and then the promises of favor. First of all, the the move of taking responsibility in verses 6 and 7. Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of weakness, to release the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the afflicted homeless into the house, when you see the naked, you cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. That word, your own flesh, will start there at the end to go back to the beginning. Your own flesh there means, uh, in the Hebrew, that's the human race. When you feel cold, when you feel hungry, when you feel pain, when you feel the misery in your flesh... It's the realization that everyone else feels like that too. We have a responsibility to people. God cares deeply about human suffering, physical and spiritual. But once again, don't get confused in what the world deems as the protected people. Because all around us are the have-nots those with no money and those with a lot. There's an old nursery rhyme that I read this week that really says it well. Hark, hark, the dogs do bark. The beggars are coming to town, some in rags, some in tags, and some in velvet gowns. The world is full of beggars rich and poor. And God cares about all. Go into all the world and share the gospel. He has blessed us in Christ to make us a blessing to them. There are a lot of verbs here that talk about freeing people from the slavery of, of, of sin and the ickiness of this world. You, you loose them, you undo them, they go free, break every yoke. Judah is to live as the Exodus people. They're supposed to remember they were in slaves. They were in slavery, sorry. And they need to behave as free people now, understanding this idea of, maybe you don't know it, but this year of Jubilee, a year dedicated to rest, to restoration of property, freeing people from debt, servitude, slavery... And we can find times to rest, to forgive others of, of moral debts, however they've wronged us, and, and, and time to let God move. Counterfeit religion will enslave you every single time. True faith in Christ liberates. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 16, live as people who are what? free." you're free. And if you live in a way where you take responsibility to share the faith of Christ with others, to, to work uh, with others and trying to help them understand how, how to seek God and grow in God and, and different things like that, verses 8 and 9 then talks about the favor of God that comes from that. Then your light will break out like the dawn, And your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of Yahweh will be your rear guard. Oh yeah, I like that. Who's covering the backside? God. Then you will call and Yahweh will answer. You will cry and He will say, here I am. Do you want God to answer your prayers? Be an answer to someone else's prayer. Do you want God to come to, in an in, in intimate way to you and say, here I am? Well, then get close to someone who needs you and say to them, here I am. And here's the paradox that's the center of this truth. I'm not making this up all of a sudden. This is Acts 20, 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And almost nothing in our American culture encourages us to believe that. Our government certainly does not believe that. They just want to give people fake stuff all day long. But they only give it in order to enslave. God is actually a cheerful giver. God is an intense lover of people, amen? He loved us so much that He gave us who? Christ, His Son. God is our helper. He wants us to share in that. He wants us to be like Him to a world that desperately needs His love. And He says also, so you see the favor of God, and then there's, you know, you got to be correcting wrongs Verse second part of verse 9, if you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you offer your soul to the hungry and satisfy the soul of the afflicted. So he's he's basically saying there stop pointing, just stop pointing the finger in accusation or in scoffing. Cease from the mudslinging and the slander. Share Christ. And then you see the favor of God again in the second part of verse 10. Then your light will rise in darkness and your thick darkness will become like midday and Yahweh will continually guide you and satisfy your soul in scorched places and fortify your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient waste. Places You will raise up the foundations of past generation upon generation, and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the paths for one to inhabit. Just as God is generous, as people must reflect that generosity. You've got to pour yourself out. It's not an offhand contribution, but it's a life devoted to serving God. That's what it means to walk in the light, when it says that in 1 John 1:7. If God is with us, even times of gloom will shine as light." Verse 11, he says, "We're going to be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, waters that do not fail. Reminds us of the rivers of living water Jesus spoke of in John 7. How does that actually work? How do you become this river of living waters uh, springing forth? How does that start flowing? James Montgomery Boyce proposed one way of how that may look. He said this, I would say that one of the best things that could happen to many believers would be... Okay, I'm just going to stop right now and tell you what I'm about to say Maybe a little tough for some people to swallow. Okay? James Montgomery Boyce said and proposed this one way I would say that one of the best things could happen to many believers would be for them to be led to give away all at one time a substantial part of their savings. That is, they should give a substantial part of their capital. Why? Because there is something about giving away a sizable percentage of one's money, and of course, the amount would vary entirely from one individual to another. That is spiritually invigorating. Who does that remind you of in the New Testament? Someone that gave away pretty much everything she had. okay keep going and there is seldom a case in which a large gift does not throw the christian back on the lord and increase the feeling that he is all wonderful and that he is more than able to care for the one who trusts them i have seen this happen in many instances and i have never known a true christian to be sorry for even the most sacrificial giving afterwards So, if your life is a continual effort to cope with the the grim business of survival, just getting by, you're not understanding how God wants us to live. God has so much more for us than that. A spring of water whose waters do not fail, trusting Him enough to follow through in giving it away. Well, Scott, it kind of sounds like prosperity type of faith stuff. You're just telling people to give a lot away. You notice I never said expect a lot back. Here. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, in verse 12. God's rebuilding the whole world according to the gospel. He intends to do that through us. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. God God wants to make you into a hero in the story of world redemption. See, that's what this is about. The world may never notice you. You may never have the same level in your bank account again, but God sees and God rewards for eternity. And so he ends, and you kind of go, okay, this last part seems a little bit like bolted on to the first part, verses 13 and 14, because all of a sudden it's about keeping the Sabbath. But isn't fasting a lot like keeping the Sabbath in some ways? Verse 13, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own desire on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of Yahweh, honorable and honor it by not doing your own ways, by not finding your own desire and speaking your own word, you're choosing delighting in God. The Sabbath is meant to structure our weekly schedules around glorifying and enjoying God together. The Lord's Day, that, that's, that's what we do. The, what, what do we say? Well, in Psalm 27, 4, when, which we read earlier altogether, one thing I've asked from Yahweh that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh, to inquire in His temple. The Sabbath is God's appointed release for us from our self-worshiping addiction of living life for ourselves. Work productivity, efficiency, organization, business, blah, 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 blah. The Sabbath is God's way of saying, no, no, your highest values will not be professional and commercial. That will only end up destroying you and others through you. Your highest values will be worshipped. And freedom in Christ and delight and enriching you and all around you. And when you run your business that way, it's different. And when you do schoolwork that way, it's different. It's about the whole thing. And what's interesting is that for many Christians where we live today, the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is the day where many are least likely to observe. And... A lot of people go, well, you know, Jesus was was all... He was against the Sabbath. No, 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 no. He was against fake faith. Because part of a true Sabbath is helping people. Because, see, they were mad that He was helping people. Go, Go look it up. Trust me. And they had taken it and made it into this fake thing, and so we kind of go, well, you know, we're, 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 we make up what Jesus was actually fighting about and change it to, well, you know, we don't want to be legalistic in the Lord's day and not work and blah, 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 so, you know, what we do, though, is we end up accidentally, I'm not sure if it's accidentally, but we end up doing it anyway, we enslave ourselves even more to destructive work, workaholism Unintentional but real exploitation of, of employees. The obliteration of family intimacy. You know, one, I think <laughs> one of the worst things that's out there for younger families today that have kids is how all of the Little League and soccer is on Sunday mornings too now. It is. And so now there's this battle. That, I mean, there's a battle on every front. Satan hasn't missed anything. And we lose a sense of what's sacred. But if we keep the Lord's day, you know, I, and this is the part that's been convicting to me this week. So I, I've been kind of wrestling with, okay, so what do I do on Sunday? On the Lord's day. My wife's in here, so this is dangerous. <laughs> Do on Sunday? The Lord's Day. Yeah, I get it. I'm here at 6 in the morning till maybe 1, 2 in the afternoon, but that's not the end of the Lord's Day. And what if the Lord's Day was the Lord's Day? What would that look like? And I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about. Oh, I'm not going to fly anywhere on Sunday. I'm not going to, you know, just different things like that. Don't get me wrong. What I'm talking about is what's the focus of that day? I need to get home pretty quick because there's a great baseball game on at 5. I mean, call into question, you know, is that profitable for the Lord's Day? Yeah, they, I'm not, I don't want to get legalistic about it, but I'm just saying these are the things, rem, you know, rumbling around in the head of Scott Julian. And then, you know, some of you, and I've heard some of you say this, and I, and I applaud you for it, but there's, uh, there's times when people go, man, I just, man, Scott, wouldn't it be cool if we had a retreat... Where, you know, let's say, hey, the guys were just going to go three days up in the mountains and we were just going to be all about God for those three days. I'm totally for that. But are we missing something that's right in front of our face? Uh, I, I did the math on this. That's a scary thing. That's what gets me in trouble sometimes. If you keep the Lord's Day, one day in seven, 52 weeks a year you know how long of a spiritual retreat you have during the week during the year i'm sorry seven and a half weeks of a spiritual retreat with god hey that wipes out three days with the guys that i really don't want to sleep in the same dorm room with anyway anyway seven and a half weeks of focusing on God. You think that would change maybe the trajectory of the rest of your week and year and life? In our culture, churches have kind of backed off of this. And so I've been wrestling with this this week. And so oddly enough, I I found in... um, I, di- I didn't grow up in a Baptist church or anything, so if anyone ever says that I'm Baptist, it's not true. I'm just Christian. But I found something that's interesting. In 1963, so if you're if you're part of any of these Baptist conf- uh, conferences, they have these uh, like uh, the two thousand year 2000 uh, Baptist Faith and Message, and it kind of gives kind of their uh, summary of belief statement and what's important for them and everything. Um, You know, different things throughout the ages have been called those types of stuff. I I found something. So if you go to the newest Baptist faith and message, it does not say this section, which I find interesting. And I think it's a part of bowing our knee to culture. 1963 Baptist faith and message. And I'm going back to the question, Everyone. What would it look like if we actually gave the whole Lord's Day to the Lord in our own lives? The 1963 Baptist Faith and Message had a very large portion of it that said this, The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should be employed an exercise of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. And by refraining from worldly amusements and resting from secular employments, works of necessity and mercy only being accepted. If you look now, that section's gone. And if you look, just just saying this, if you look at the trajectory of many people and their families that have been Christians over the years, and you look at how one thing that may be there is maybe God knew something, go figure. We need to focus on Him. And we need to spend that time. And I think the way to do it for us, mentally, I was thinking about this week, I think this i I read one guy. he said, "This is how I turned this around in my head. God has made an, a weekly God has made a weekly appointment with me. Do I love him enough to keep it? Now we have to all go home and like repent, but okay. So he says that in verse 13. Verse 14 is a promise. Then you will take delight in Yahweh. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the inheritance of Jacob your father. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Delight in God is the most precious treasure in the world. It's not stuff. It's delighting in God. I will make you right on the heights of the earth. Isaiah 61.10 I will rejoice greatly in Yahweh. My soul will rejoice in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of what? Salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. See, it opens everything up when we delight in the Lord the way He wants us to. Isaiah 40, verse 5. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. You see, what happens is when we focus on God and live His way the rest of the week, it expels sin, it praises Christ, it studies the Bible, it raises kids well, it works hard for the benefits of others, it relieves suffering, it builds the church, and it all goes to heaven. Let's pray.